0: John chapter 8, but I don't think I'm ready there yet. I don't feel like I have a full grasp of that one. It's going to be like a ping pong message. Look over here, look over there, there, (laughs) here, there. there. (laughs) I'll back up so I don't have to turn my head quite as far. So, not ready for John 8, and uh, I was thinking maybe we would do a little bit of revelation that's where we've, we've got a group of young people at our place and we've been doing Bible study been going through revelation but I'm not sure we're ready for that um, so what I want to think about then is in Romans chapter 8 and I know we've been here before uh, thinking about verses 820 or verses 28 and 29 uh, but I want to zero in on a couple words that I've been thinking about lately and trying to understand not just their meaning but the value of the words and the value of the concepts so romans 8:28 and 29 we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are the called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. The two words I want to think about are foreknew and predestined. And I've been thinking about them because normally when I come to this verse, I think of foreknow as if, Back in eternity past, God was looking through the passages of time, through the passages of history, and He knew everything that was going to happen. And the same with predestined—that from eternity past, God had kind of mapped out things, like He had set certain people for certain uh, uh, destinations or whatever. You know, kind of lined things up from eternity past. And but I, I find that that concept is. Probably not correct. Because, and not that God didn't know things from eternity past. When I mean, there's other passages that talk about him looking through, you know, from the eternity past. He knew things that would happen. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. And as I looked at these words and began to dissect them, uh, the words are compound, both foreknow and predestined are compound words. They've got a prefix in front of them, and then the, they got the root word. So for no, you've got the prefix in the Greek is that for part, you know, and that simply means beforehand. It doesn't mean necessarily eternity past. It just means before the present time, such and such a thing took place. You can use that prefix attached to other words. And predestined has the same prefix. And so it means beforehand. <coughs> And so what I realized in looking at that prefix is that the normal sense of the word being used, whenever you attach that prefix, you're talking about this verb happened before the present time. Whatever the verb is, it happened before the present time. And the context would have to tell you how far back before the present time or before the, yeah, how far back before the present time that this word took place, this verb took place. So one thing that, as we look in this passage, uh, he's talking about actually looking forward. He's, he's discussing the present. He says, you know, we got the, back in verse 18 is kind of where the thought or the paragraph sort of begins, although the thought begins earlier. But, he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared for the glory that shall be revealed to us." revealed in us. And he goes on to talk about this hope that we have looking forward to the conclusion of the salvation that God is accomplishing. So the, the context is actually looking forward to, <laughs> to the end time. It, it's not, it doesn't really set the marker of how far in the past this, this knowing took took place or this dest, this destined, this whatever. <laughs> we should probably talk about what these verbs are. <clears throat> so the, the prefix of both for know and predestined is beforehand. For know, obviously the root of the word is a knowledge. It's knowing. And, and in the Greek, you had two different types of knowing. There was a, a knowing of like facts, things that you would get as you were studying in school. You would learn all about a topic, <coughs> whether it was a historical topic or whether it was math or whatever. You know, you would learn about the topic, and that was uh, you could learn a lot about it. You could be very familiar with it. There was another type of knowledge that was more towards uh, kind of a relational type of thing, where you knew something because you experienced it. So you could. Uh, We could read about the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross and we could study about the pain of what it would would be to have the nails go through the axial nerve or whatever it is. I mean, people have gone through and talked about the stress that he would have gone through with his weeping in Gethsemane and the whipping that would take place. And you could know all about it, and that's one kind of knowledge. But if you were crucified yourself, (laughs) you'd have a whole different type of knowledge you might not know all the technical terms, but you would know the pain because you've experienced it. So there are two kinds of knowledge, the knowledge of knowing about it and the one of knowing it because you've gone through it. So in foreknow, it's the second one. It's the knowledge of experience, the knowledge, it's like, uh, the knowledge of having gone through something. And so we'll talk about a little bit more about what that means later on. Uh, and then for predestined, the root of that word is uh, normally translated like determined, like when you have, uh, well, I should, I should say what it isn't. It doesn't mean a decree where you, you state something and, and everybody has to comply with it whether they like it or not. It's more of a determined where this is, this is a thing that you want to see done, and the people that are involved in it aren't usually going against their will. Usually it's something that they are agreeable to do. This is kind of an interesting... It's like when Rihanna, she's going to call up all her friends and she's determined that she wants to play volleyball. It only happens if her friends are agreeable to doing it type of thing. Like it's... And, and so initially she might call them up and they'll be like, yeah, you know, I just, I'm not too sure about it. And so she might work at him a little bit and maybe maybe this friend here he's not too interested so she calls up a couple other people that she knows that he will and you know they want to go so then she calls them back up and says hey these people are going to be there and he's like oh okay maybe you know so she kind of persuades, brings everybody on board and then they go and do it and that's the it seems like that's the sense of this determined it's more people are agreeable to being what to what's uh what's been determined so those are the two verbs is the the knowing and determined <clears throat> and they happened before some present time so like i said the context doesn't exactly point to what earlier time paul is thinking of he doesn't he's not talking about eternity past he's talking actually about eternity future we know what the present time is. It's the, the current time that they were living in. And it's written in such a way that it, it's the reader. It's actually the, the current time that the reader is living in. You know, Because he talks about the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We all can identify with that. We all can understand what the sufferings of this present time are. The sufferings of my present time is a different present time than the sufferings that Paul went through as far as chronology. But as far as the course of life, like it's the same kind of, like he would be going through life in his time period, I go through life in my time period, and we both, in our respective time periods, in the current place of our life, we have this present time where we are enduring sufferings or whatever we might be going through. So we can relate to him. So, But before, in my current life, as I read this passage, before this present time where I'm enduring sufferings, there was a knowledge... And there was a determination that God did. So I want to, uh, I want to explore, let's see, I want to, I want to go back now and think a little bit more about foreknowledge and look at some examples, um, Let's let's take the root word knowledge, and let's look at some look at a particular example where this is used in John chapter uh, two. I think maybe one. It's a well known story. Uh, shortly after Jesus, it is chapter one, the Gospel of John chapter one. It is it was shortly after Jesus was baptized, after he was introduced by John the Baptist, and. And the way John writes it is that after Jesus was introduced to the world, after John the Baptist said, Behold, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After that time, he started to collect disciples. Men started to follow him. And uh, the first two disciples that John writes about are men who were originally disciples of John the Baptist. And they begin to follow him. And as they go, begin to follow him and they, they spend some time with him, they go off and they find a buddy. They say, Hey, we... We, uh, we, this, we, we found a Messiah. you, you to come and see. And so then their buddies would come. And then uh, in verse 43 of chapter 1 is another, is another example of Jesus calling a disciple. So it says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, we'll come and see. So Philip, the Lord called Philip, come follow me. And I don't know, it doesn't give us any detail of what kind of interaction that Philip had with Jesus before Jesus called him how it was that he was so easily persuaded to go follow Jesus. I don't know if he had been following John the Baptist and he had heard Jesus say something or if he had heard what John the Baptist said or if he had heard Jesus say, you know I'm not sure what the background was. But whatever it was, Philip was entirely agreeable to go follow Jesus. So much so that he thought, I mean, he was so much convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that he thought, you know what, I've got another friend who's looking for the Messiah. There's a lot of Jews in this nation And some of the Jews I talk to, they're just interested in in doing the sacrifices and the feasts and and checking those boxes and making sure that they're good before God and and they're just going to go on with the rest of their life. But then there's some of us who really want to find the Messiah. We're looking forward to him. And I got a buddy who's like that. He wants to find the Messiah. And so he runs off and he goes to find Nathaniel. He says, hey, Nathaniel, we found him. And then he made the mistake of telling Nathaniel who it was they found. Jesus of Nazareth. And red flags went up right away for Nathanael. He's like, "Don't you know the you know the prophets, Philip? What do you mean Nazareth? We know that the Messiah comes out of the tribe of Judah, not out of the tribe of Manasseh, Ephraim, or whoever Galilee is in." Plus Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. This like they were on the outer fringes. They were Jews, but they were practically Gentiles. They didn't come to all the feasts and stuff. So Philip's, that's why Nathaniel's response probably was like, y'all to Nazareth. I mean, we're, but Philip convinces him to come and see. And it says then in verse 47, that Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, now this is the first time Jesus has ever met Nathaniel. First time. And uh, Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Like, this is a guy, he's got no facade. What you see is what you get. He's straightforward. This is, this is a man. And Nathaniel was a little bit astonished by that. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And that's our word then. This word for knowledge. What Nathaniel is astonished at is that Jesus knew him in a very personal way. Because the reason Nathaniel was astonished is because normally, to get to know somebody, you have to spend time with them. And the more time you spend with them, and you see their quirks, you experience their quirks firsthand, and you go through experiences, and you know what, how, you know, what pushes their buttons, you know how they respond to different things, and you just kind of know what a person is like and you can predict what that person is going to do in certain situations because you've seen them do those kinds of... or, or You've seen them respond to certain situations like that yeah. before. And that's a, it's, it's a personal knowledge that comes out of experience, spending time with that person. And Nathaniel is saying, how... I mean, my friends... I don't know, maybe his friends had said that in the past, that he was a man... This is a, this is a guy that... What you see is what you get... Apparently he had that reputation enough so that when Jesus said that he was like wait how do you how do you know me and so Jesus answered and said to him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree I saw you and Nathanael answered and said to him rabbi you are the son of god you are the king of Israel We'd love to know what the significance of that under the fig tree was all about. But we don't. John leaves that out. All we know is that whatever that meant, whatever under the fig tree was about, nobody else knew what it meant. But Nathaniel knew what it meant. And he knew that that meant that Jesus knew him like in a way that only God could. He said, you are the son of God. This—I mean, you, you know me. You know my goings. You know my sitting down. You know where I lay down at night. You know me. <clears throat> and Jesus knew him before he ever met him. And Nathaniel found that when he came to Jesus, that Jesus knew him beforehand. Turn to uh, Acts, I think it's 26. Where Paul uses the word for "no" in its normal sense, like you would in a normal everyday conversation. In Acts twenty-six, Paul is has the opportunity to, to uh, share his story to Agrippa. He's required to. He's he's on trial, and. Uh, He's glad to talk to King Agrippa because he knows that King Agrippa has some background in the in Jewish history and Jewish culture and so forth, and so he'd be a better chance that he would understand where Paul is coming from. And uh, so in verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. In verse 5 there, where he says, they knew me from the first, uh, if you wanted to translate that more literally, he would be saying, they foreknew me from the beginning. Well, we know what he's not talking about eternity past here, right? I mean, he's all he's saying is that Before I was ever incarcerated, before the event at the temple ever took place, these Jews—they knew me beforehand. They knew me from back back at the beginning, back when I first started uh, my—you know—when I first left childhood and began to live the life of an adult. They knew me way back then. They knew that I was zealous to live as a Pharisee and that I followed all the rules and that I studied everything. I mean, they they knew me beforehand. So that's the normal sense of the word, to know beforehand. So now the, the difficulty that comes here, at least for me, was kind of hard to figure out. Back in Romans 8, and keep your finger in chapter 26. We'll come back to that when Paul writes about God knowing beforehand, what is he, I mean, we know what the present time is. The present time is in our present sufferings. Uh, We also can see by looking at verse 29 that he's not just talking about the present time of present sufferings, but he's talking about Uh, see like in verse 30 he says moreover whom he predestined I mean you see the sequence of events right first comes foreknew in verse 29 and then predestined and then you go down to verse 30 you got that predestined and that's followed by called and then called is followed by justified and justified is followed by glorified so he's looking not just at the present time is in the the time of suffering but also at the present time of when you first were saved, because that's what justified is talking about. So this predestined and the foreknew happened before he was saved. But how far beforehand? Like, what is Paul talking about? Is he is he referencing to eternity past? There's nothing in the context that indicates that he's thinking of eternity past. Well, then, what is he referring to? And if you go through Romans from chapter 1, clear up to chapter 8 or 9, and try to find some place where he talks about God foreknowing people before they were saved, I can't think of anything that really indicates or that, that really discusses that kind of concept of God knowing people before they're saved. So it doesn't seem to be in Romans, there doesn't seem to be any clue to indicate what Paul is talking about. So that was, how do, you, how do you figure it out? I mean, if, you, if it's not in the passage and not in the context, and it's not in the rest of the epistle, I can jump to random passages and say, well, here's God foreknowing from eternity past, so then that, but how do I know that that actually applies to Romans eight twenty eight? It has to be something that Paul was intimately familiar with, and he knew that his readers were intimately familiar with something that they were full aware of and didn't need any explaining to talk about God's foreknowing or his predestining. They would know what he was talking about and there's no need to explain it. I wanna you know take what we've you know take what we've seen in Nathaniel, where Jesus knew him before he met him knew that he was a man without guile. And we can think of other passages in John where Jesus demonstrated the same kind of knowledge. For example, when he went to the woman at the well, she said, I have no husband. And he said, that's true, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. He knew her beforehand. Uh, We can look at other stories too, where it's clear that Jesus had some previous knowledge before ever physically meeting the person. Put that, in the, back, put that in, the, in the background and go back to Acts 26. Now let's take a look at Paul's testimony as he tells it to King Agrippa. He goes on after, you know, we read verses 4 and 5 about the Jews who knew him from beforehand, knew him from the first. And then he, he, uh, in verse 6 he says, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. He's, he's talking about the promise that God has set up, which kind of fits actually Romans 8, where he talked about the promise that we look forward to. <coughs> so he's, so it's the same kind of thing. Looking forward to the promise, he said, it's actually, he was telling King Agrippa that actually the hope of this promise is actually which has landed me here in jail. Because Paul found that the hope of the promise was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he preached that, and they, the Jews took offense at that. They didn't want the resurrection of Christ proclaimed, and so they put him in jail. And he says in verse 8, But why should it be thought incredible that, to you by the, that God raises the dead? And now he gets to his testimony. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests when they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So we know about this. Back before Paul was Paul, back when he was Saul, he persecuted the people of God, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's very zealous about it. And he's relating this to King Agrippa. Now, verse 12, he says, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O oh King, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. This is that Damascus road journey, that experience that Paul had or Saul had, when the Lord appeared to him and the light was brighter than the sun and it dropped him to his knees and he heard the voice and nobody else heard it. He says, "When we all fall into the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul." Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. (laughs) Paul said, this is not fair. Who are you, Lord? You clearly know me. I don't know you. None of my friends, none of my close acquaintances know that it's hard to kick against the goads. All they see is me going and persecuting these this cult of people who follow after Jesus, and they see me going with zeal and never like I'm I'm leading the charge. I'm throwing them into prison. It's my voice that gets them convicted. Nobody knows that inside. Every time one of these people speak, it gets me here for some reason, even though I know what they're saying is lies. and every time I throw them into jail, it gets me deep on the inside. Nobody knows that. I don't tell anybody about that. How do you know me? So so Paul is expressing that King Agrippa. The same thing that we've all experienced—that when you come to God, you find out—I was listening to uh, Danielle had sent the link of this gal. She was uh, used to be a lesbian, and she was telling her testimony of how she got to be saved, and and then also, and it was on a website, and there was a bunch of testimonies on there, And, and. I kind of like listening to testimonies, people telling how they got saved, and uh, so I started listening to some of the other ones, and I began to notice how often these people who had, they had come to the end of the rope, the one guy, he had been selling drugs, and he was full of hatred, and he was full of anger against God, he didn't know there was a God, and he was full of anger against God, and and, to, and they would say, you know, you come to God and you find out he knows exactly who you are. And he calls you to himself anyhow. How often they said that. And I realize it's true that we rec- we recognize that, we, we've experienced that. We know that when you come to God to be saved, it's not that he takes you in and sweeps your in. The, in brings you in and then finds out, oh boy, you got a lot of sin there. Here, we'll just kind of brush this all off and get you all clean. No, he's he knows full well what goes on inside of a person's heart. He knows the anger, the hatred, and the all the stress and the burden and everything else, all that stuff that we go through when we deal with our sin. Like, he knows. The gal that was given her story as a lesbian, she was saying she was in bed with her girlfriend and uh, just thinking, and she rolls over and says to her girlfriend, do you think what we're doing is wrong? And her girlfriend was totally shocked. She's like, I can't believe you just asked that. She said, I was just about to ask you that. Same thing. And, and she said it was amazing to see that God was working in her heart and her girlfriend's heart. And they, they got out of bed and they ran to find the Bible and they started flipping through the pages. They, they didn't know where to go and they couldn't find anything. They finally like, this is, this is stupid just to flip through pages. Let's just open up to a spot and let's start reading. And They, <laughs> they opened up and landed in Leviticus. And they looked at the passage, and the, and the passage said that it was an abomination for a man to lie with a man as he does with a woman. And they was like, oh, "That's it. We're doing what's wrong. It's clear as a bell right here. This is absolutely wrong. We gotta stop doing this." And they went to go find some church or something where they could find truth. And they went to some place that shared with them the gospel, and they. She said they went to that church and they, they learned about what the Lord had done to save people. And they were so excited. Both of them got saved kind of independently at the same day on the same church, you know, whatever. But she said that we walked into that church in a relationship. We left that church as sisters in Christ and never went back to the relationship again. She said we never held hands. We never did that. And she said it wasn't like it was really awful thing it was we were excited we were thrilled to finally be I don't know they were sisters now in Christ she was talking about how amazing it was that God was working in both their hearts at the same time and they didn't know as close as they were with each other they didn't know what the other one was thinking (laughs) But that's like, whenever we come to Christ, whenever people come to Christ, we find out that he knew us ahead of time. He foreknew. He, he's close. He's fully aware of our thoughts and what we go through and where we walk and where we sit down. Like He, he knows us. And, and for Paul to find that the Lord knew the inner recesses of his heart and the struggle that he went through was evidence of God's love towards him and was such a, uh, a, a revelation of joy. <clears throat> so I think that's what he's talking about when he says, who God foreknew Because it's something that Paul knew intimately. I mean, it's his own story. And it's something that the other believers would know intimately, because it's their story too, that God knew me beforehand. Now now let's think about predetermined. Um, The word determined is used in the Old Testament. If you look in the Old Testament Greek, it's used uh, of people who would say, uh, they wanted to to uh, take on a vow. They're going to, they determine that they're going to change something in their life and it's, uh, they're going to make a, a promise before God that this thing is going to change for a certain period of time, whatever. So that determining to take a vow, that's the sense. And so you can see how it's not a decree type of thing. Like if you determine to take a vow, that's you deciding I'm going to take a vow. And in the New Testament, we see it used in the same way where God determines the boundaries of the nations. And I don't know about you, but like, it doesn't seem like nations are, you know, for, I mean, you got—you you know if you're going to establish a nation, it doesn't seem like people are really too upset about their land. It's not like God is forcing people into their boundaries. Like people are pretty much, they find their spots and that's where they live type of thing. Or you'll see where God determines for the Lord Jesus, that he was going to be delivered over to sinful men. That's an interesting one, because Jesus was agreeable to go with where God determined. The people were agreeable to do what God had determined. They were more than happy. I don't know if happy is the right word, but they were more than agreeable to heap their abuse upon the Lord Jesus. It wasn't like they were forced into doing it. So it's that kind of a word where Somebody has made a decision, and, and there may be a period of time that takes place from when the decision is made to when people are actually on board. Well, God had determined before Jesus came to this earth that he was going to go to the cross. When Jesus first got to the earth, when he was a young boy in the temple asking the questions, They weren't looking to crucify him at that time, but by the time he got 33 years old, they were more than ready to crucify him. I mean, it took some time for people to get to where God had determined that he would bring everything towards. Now for Paul, if we continue reading in in, uh, Acts 26, he says, you you know, right off where we left off, it's in verse 15, he says, so I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I will send you, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So you look at what Jesus had determined for Paul. This is what you are going to do. You are going to go out and be a minister. You're going to preach the gospel. And not particularly to the Jews, you're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And you're going to turn them from their darkness into light. Now you remember, when Paul went out and first started preaching the gospel, <clears throat> where did he go? To the synagogues. He went to preach to the Jews. And then he went to Jerusalem. And you, you can read places where Paul would say to the to God, Let me go preach to the Jews. I know they'll listen to me. You know, they, they know me from back in the beginning. And God said, No, no, you've got to get out of Jerusalem because they're gonna they're not gonna listen to you. Paul and Paul will even say at the beginning of Romans uh, 9 he will say my heart is for the Jewish people that they would be saved I would give up my own salvation if I could see them be saved like he he wanted to go to the Jews and Christ had determined that he would go to the Gentiles and by the time you get to the end of Acts you'll read that little statement where the very end about the while Paul was in that house prison uh In chapter 28, in verse 20, let's say 24, he'd been preaching to the Jews. And it says in verse 24, some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For this hearts so of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Like Paul had reached the point where he's like, look, I have been trained by your top scholars. If anybody knows how to communicate to the Jews, I do. I have all the knowledge of the scriptures. I can back up everything I'm saying through prophecies, through the writings of Moses, There is no reason why you Jews should not believe. And yet you do not believe. And it must be that you will not believe. You have shut your eyes. You don't want to see. You don't want to hear. What Isaiah said is true. So he says in verse verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. It seems like at the end of Acts, we see Paul saying, there's nothing more I can do for the Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he had already gone to the Gentiles to some degree before that. But like now, he's fully on board. And he's going to do what Christ had determined beforehand for him to do. It took some time for Paul to fully get on board, It seems. Not that Paul was sinning against Christ when he went around and preached at the synagogues and so forth. But eventually he reached the point where he was fully agreeable to do what Christ had determined beforehand for him to do. So Christ had determined even before Paul got saved, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a preacher to the Gentiles. Ah, Paul had no interest in going out to the Gentiles at that time. Now, notice in, in verse, in, back in Romans 8, what Paul says, what uh, God has uh, predetermined for us, for believers. In verse 29, he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. When you think about what that means. What that means, God, who knew us beforehand, And he knew all of the sin and the corruption inside of our hearts. Like, we weren't fully aware of all the extent of the corruption, although we were beginning to be aware, and that's why we turned to Christ for salvation. But he knew full well just how saturated in sin we were. And he said, I am going to take this sinner that's hopelessly corrupt by sin and make him righteous, like the Lord Jesus. That's what I determined to do. It's quite something. It's an impossible. It's like what you would call a mission impossible to take a sinner and make them like the Lord Jesus, and it's not going to be done by overruling that person's will. Like, boom! All of a sudden, what you like it or not? So you're all righteous. We know what it's like to go through these sufferings of this present time, and to little by little be brought on board in this area of my life and in that area of my life to be brought on board of. You know what? This needs to go, and I need to. I need to embrace the righteousness of the Lord Jesus in this area of my life. As little, and little, little by little, we get on board and we go more and more the direction that he has determined beforehand, before he ever saved us. He took on the task, I am going to take this sinner and make him like the Lord Jesus Christ before he ever saved us. Knowing us intimately, before we ever knew him. I think that's why Paul doesn't feel like he needs to give some kind of context to this to explain what he meant beforehand. Because every believer knows this, having experienced it. We have found that the Lord knew us beforehand. And we have found that we were looking to be forgiven and delivered from our guilt. And he had in mind to make us righteous. We found we couldn't become righteous. That was what was in his mind, and we are learning more and more what it means to be righteous and embracing that destination that he has in mind. We all have known this, we all have experienced that. There is no need for Paul to explain in detail what he's talking about. And that's why then, as he talks about this, about God's foreknowing us, it's, it's describing God's commitment to us, right? He knew what we were, and he had a goal in mind. Then he saved us. <clears throat> but if he was committed to us before we were ever saved, then in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with them also freely give us all things? That's, you know, it segues directly into this final, concluding paragraph of this section of Romans. Which finally closes then with that thought in verse 38. And with this we'll close for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord Father I come before you and just thank you for your mercies towards us And knowing us knew all of our sin Not to condemn us, but to fully save us. To fully know what needed to be removed from our lives, removed from our hearts in order to make us like the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you are committed to that work of making us righteous, bringing us along the way. And that you will complete it one day, that one day when we see him, we will be like him. And we look forward to that. Because we have found how rich it is to walk in righteousness and how awful it is to be in sin. We thank you for what the Lord Jesus has done on our behalf. In his name, amen.